Okay, so the Bible reading is from John 4, 4 to 26. I'll give you some time to get it from your Bible or smartphones. So, John 4, 4 to 26. Now he had gone through Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria called Sichar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon when a Samarian woman came to him to draw water. Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samarian woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samarian woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samarians. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. How can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will never become become in them a spirit of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you have said you have no husband. The fact is, you have have had five husbands, and the man you are now have is not your husband. What you have is just is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on the mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming where you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Sumerians worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and he has come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in the truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in the truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Thanks be to God. Thanks for reading God's word to us. We're going to uh, look at this passage and we're particularly going to look at verses 21 to 24. We're continuing our journey through the Bible's story of worship. We began uh, in the Garden of Eden. We moved this morning to the desert and now we're into the Gospels. And we have this wonderful conversation between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. I was once speaking at a uh, seminar and uh, the, the seminar was being held in a chapel at a conference centre and on the door of the chapel 
there was a notice and it said, Please be quiet in the sanctuary. This is a place of worship. The, the idea was that as you stepped into that space, shh, be quiet. God is here. This is a holy place. And that view of worship has pervaded uh, the, the history of the Christian church, that there are spaces, churches, places that are sanctuaries, holy places. I remember as a boy going to church, uh, and when we went into the, the church auditorium where the worship service took place, we would always go in there and be quiet. Shh. You didn't talk to other people in the in the pews, you didn't uh, chatter, you were quiet because this was the beginning of worship. You were in a church. Uh, if you go into a cathedral, the, the whole design, the whole architecture is uh, designed so that you are pointed upwards by these arches and you're made to feel small. There's a sense of majesty and awe in the very architecture of the building. But is a church building or a chapel or a cathedral a special place? Is it a kind of tabernacle as we looked at this morning? Is it a kind of temple? Is it, is it a sacred space? Is it a sanctuary? We saw that Eden, the Garden of Eden, was a kind of sanctuary, a meeting place of God where Adam and Eve, the people he first formed, served him there almost like a priestly service as they worked in the garden and did everything to his glory and his honour and as God met with them there and had fellowship with them. It was a sanctuary, a meeting place with God. And we saw that the tabernacle was a meeting place that God designed where his people could come into his holy presence. But is your church building a sanctuary? Now, no one dares move their head in one direction or the other at this moment, and that is very wise. We need to have a look at this conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman. It's a remarkable conversation, and it has a whole lot to say about this very issue. It's a remarkable conversation in a number of ways. Remarkable even took place. Jesus is actually breaking all the rules, all the cultural barriers. For one thing, he is a man speaking with a woman in a public place in the middle of the day. That was culturally inappropriate. Secondly, he is a Jew speaking with a Samaritan that was culturally inappropriate. So it was remarkable the conversation even took place. Then it's even more remarkable the way he exposes her past. As the conversation unfolds, he says, well, go and get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you don't. You've had five and you're on to number six and he's not your husband. Ouch. Ouch. 
He has really ramped the conversation up. The next remarkable thing is not only that he prophetically knows her life story, the next remarkable thing is how quickly she changes the subject. It's absolutely brilliant in verse 20. She says, oh, I can see you're a prophet. Yes, indeed. And then she says, uh, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You Jews say it should be in Jerusalem. She introduces this nice theological question to try and uh, change the pace. But Jesus is the master of spiritual conversation. And so he now grabs that with both hands. And he talks about worship. He talks about true worship. And we're going to look at uh, some really important things that he says about true worship. The, The first thing is this. We need to think about the new location of worship. The new location of worship. So far in the Bible story, as I've said, we've seen two locations for worship. There are others actually which we've had to skip over, but we've seen two. We've seen the Garden of Eden as a location of worship, a sanctuary, a holy place. And we've seen the tabernacle in the desert as a sanctuary, a holy place. But where is the location of worship now? Buddhists have temples. Muslims have mosques. Jews have synagogues. Hindus have shrines. And Christians have churches, right? (laughs) Well, we have to think... We have to think very carefully about about whether that is right. Look at what Jesus says in verses 21 and 23. He says, Believe me, woman, a time is coming. A time is coming. And verse 23 says, A time is coming and has now come. The, The hour is coming and it's now here. He's saying we are on the cusp of a new era. Now, there are many times in history when humanity has stood on the cusp of a new era. Uh, Fifty years ago, uh, this year, Neil Armstrong made that famous statement as he stepped onto the moon. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That, that, That was the cusp of a new era, the era of space exploration. On the 4th of July, 1776, 13 states in America declared independence from Britain and the United States of America were formed. It was the cusp of a completely new era politically. 17th of October, 1517. Yes, some of you know the date. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, sparked a debate which triggered the Protestant Reformation and a whole new era in church history was born. Each of these times and dozens of other times, people have stood on the cusp of a new era, but no... No one has stood on the cusp of a more radically changed era than the one 
Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman about. A time is coming and it has now come. And what he says is this, that in this new era, there will no longer be one physical geographic location for true worship. He says worship will not be on Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worshipped. So he's basically saying, sorry Samaritans, you've got it wrong. But he also says worship will no longer be in Jerusalem which had been the centre of the worship of God's people for hundreds of years. Jesus does say here salvation comes from the Jews. It comes from their history of the tabernacle and the temple of sacrifices and priests, all that we saw this morning. Salvation comes from that history, but all those things were signs and shadows pointing forward to now what was about to happen. The cusp of the new era was there because Jesus the Messiah was there. In this new era, true worship will not centre on a place, it will not centre on a building, any building. It will centre on a person. Jesus, the Messiah. Everything in the Bible up to this point is leading forward to this new era and now that the Messiah is here, the new era has arrived and worship will centre On him. Jesus would be the true temple, the meeting place with God. He would be the true tabernacle, the place where God's people would meet with God. You remember that he said at one time in his life, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And the people thought he's ridiculous. Look at the temple. It it took Herod 46 years to rebuild this temple. How can he knock this over and build it in three days? And then the Gospel writer says, but he wasn't talking about that temple, he was talking about his own body. He is the temple. He is the location of true worship. And where is he now? Where is our temple? Is he in Jerusalem? Is he in a cathedral? Is he in a church building? No, he is in heaven, raised and seated at the right hand of God. And by his spirit, he is everywhere present. Specifically, the New Testament teaches us, he is present in his people, in the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that the church is the temple of God. The church is the place where God is present in his glory by his spirit. And Paul also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that individual believers are temples of the Holy Spirit. It says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit because you are now indwelt by the Spirit of God. Just as God came and dwelt, remember, in the most holy place 
and there his presence and his glory is manifest, now, through the work of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in the church, and the church is the temple of the living God, and the Holy Spirit dwells in each believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are the temple of the living God. That, that's an amazing thing. As, as, I, as I stand up here, I can just see so many temples. I can see the temple of the living God, and I see loads of temples. You are a mobile temple. Wherever you go, you take the very presence of God. The Holy Spirit is within you. And so that means that Christian worship centers on Jesus Christ everywhere at all times. Let me say that again. This is, this is really, really basic and really important. Christian worship centers on Jesus Christ everywhere at all times. You are not only worshiping when you come to church and to a worship service. Yes, then you gather for worship to be built up and strengthened and encouraged and fed so that you can go out and scatter for worship. And you come together as the temple of the living God and then you go and you're scattered as temples of the living God. Wherever the church meets, there is a temple. Wherever believers go, there is a temple. So you need to think about that when, when, you, when you go, when you do anything. When you go uh, to the movies, you go there as the temple of the living God. You take the Holy Spirit to watch that movie with you. I hope you've chosen a movie the Holy Spirit will enjoy. He is the Holy Spirit. And there are some movies he likes and there are some he doesn't. It's worth thinking about. Uh, When you're hanging out with your friends, having a coffee, going out for a meal, you're a temple of the living God. You're taking the Holy Spirit with you. I hope the Holy Spirit enjoys being there. I hope he enjoys the conversation. Because you're worshipping him, even as you eat McDonald's. It's amazing, isn't it? You can eat McDonald's to the glory of God. It's difficult, but it can be done. If you eat too much McDonald's, it's probably not to the glory of God. As you're doing your budget, thinking about your finances, You're doing that as a temple of the living God. You're doing that as a worshipper of God. The presence of God is with you. And so you want to use your money to the glory of God. You want to worship the Lord as you do that. As you study, as you work, as you spend family time, as you enjoy the beautiful world that God made. We saw what an amazing world God God has made. We, We enjoy that to the glory of God. He's a God of pleasure. He's a God of beauty. He's, he's a God that delights in good things and we are to enjoy those things to the glory of God. Wherever you go, whatever you do, true worship centers on Jesus Christ. He is in heaven. He dwells in us by the Holy Spirit and we worship him everywhere all the time. That has huge implications not only for how we live, but for how we think about buildings, actually, and locations. It means, does it not, that no buildings, no cities, 
No nations are more sacred than others. Israel might get shot down here. Uh, Israel is not the holy land. Jerusalem is not the holy city. A chapel is not a sanctuary. A cathedral is not a holy place. At least, at least no more holy than a school hall when a church meets and gathers there to worship God. Or a conference centre on Phillip Island. Or a cafe. Or a garden. Or a cinema. A church can meet anywhere. And wherever that church gathers and meets, there is the temple of the living God. Jesus is present in those places as his people are there. Sometimes an old church building is put up for sale and it gets turned into an art gallery or a restaurant or a nightclub. And we might be sad to see that happen. But that church building was not a holy place. It was just a lovely building with a certain kind of architecture where a church met and that church was holy. We might have come to love that church building because perhaps it was the home of our church and we become attached to our home and a home can become special to us. But we need to remember that church building is not the holy place. It's the people of God who meet there. And it just might be, it just might be a good thing for that church to be sold, that church building to be sold and the art gallery have to spend a million dollars repairing the roof while the church moves down the road meets in a school hall and spends a million dollars on gospel ministry I served as a uh, pastor of a church in Auckland for many years and there was an elderly neighbour next to our church he, he lived in the flats just down the other side of the church I talked to him uh, quite frequently In the ten years that I was pastor there, he never once came to church. But he said to me more than once, I like living next door to the church. It makes me feel close to God. Sorry, buddy. You are not close to God by living next door to a certain building. You're only close to God. Through Jesus. True worship centres on Jesus everywhere, all the time. What is the new location of worship? Jesus. The location of worship 
is a person. That's a wonderful message for the church in persecuted countries. A wonderful message for the underground church in communist countries. It's a wonderful message. Wherever Jesus is, wherever his spirit is at work, there is a temple of the living God. But now, what, what does that mean? What then is the essence of worship? So we've looked at the new location of worship. I want us to look now at the true heart of worship. The true heart of worship. In the late 1990s, uh, the songwriter Matt Redman wrote a song called I'm Coming Back to the Heart of Worship. I don't know if you've sung that song or if you know, some of you will know that song. I'm Coming Back to the Heart of Worship. Interesting backstory to that song. He had been uh, part of a church in England that was at the forefront of the um, contemporary worship uh, scene. But the pastor of the church sensed that there was something wrong, even though they were at the cutting edge of worship music. And in a brave move, the pastor decided that they would get rid of the sound system, they would get rid of the instruments, they would get rid of all their cutting-edge music for a season and just sing with their voices. And Redmond wrote in response his song, and the words of the chorus are this, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it, when it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. And Redmond is absolutely correct. The heart of worship is all about Jesus. And that is what Jesus himself says to the Samaritan woman. So he's saying it, a time is coming when you... Uh, will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. Salvation comes from the Jews. The time is coming, has now come. Get this. When true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And those are two loaded words in John's Gospel. In fact, if we were to write them in sync with the way that John uses them in his gospel, we would have a capital S spirit and a capital T truth. Those who worship God will worship in spirit, Holy Spirit, and in truth, capital T truth. Worship in spirit, in the Holy Spirit. In John's gospel, the word spirit isn't usually used to talk about our spirit. Often we'll read this verse and say, those who true worshipers worship in spirit, that is it, they really mean it, they're really intense, they're really genuine from their heart. Now, that's a good thing. Yes, please do that. But I don't think that's what Jesus meant when he said this. What he meant is that true worship is enabled by the Holy Spirit. And what is... What is the foremost work of the Holy Spirit? The foremost work of the Holy Spirit is to point to the truth, capital T, truth, that is in Jesus. One of the uh, most helpful illustrations of, of the work of the Holy Spirit is 
that you may have heard before is to to, to think of what you see at night in the city. You might see a, a, a beautiful old building, magnificent building, maybe an old church building, uh, that's lit up at night. There are these huge floodlights at the bottom lighting up this building. The, the point of those floodlights is not that you walk past and look down into the floodlights and say, whoa, what bright floodlights. Ooh, and then you look up and can't see anything. That is not what they are there for. The point of the floodlights is that they direct your gaze up and you say, what a magnificent building. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is to put a light on Jesus, to soften our hearts to receive and know Jesus, to to bring to our hearts the teachings of Jesus, to remind our minds of who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit works in us to point us to Jesus. You know that someone is full of the Holy Spirit when they are full of Jesus, because that is the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit points us to Jesus who is the truth. John's Gospel says, John chapter 14, verse 6, uh, Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth and the life. And all those Old Testament signs and symbols that we looked at this morning were pointing forward to him. The true temple, the true priest, the final offering. Our mediator. And so Matt Redman is absolutely right in that song when he says, the heart of worship is all about you, Jesus. But he's also right in that song when he says, I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it when it's all about you, Jesus. And so easily, I think, we make the heart of worship other things. We might make the heart of worship the building. And we're devastated if the building is changed. Or we make the heart of worship the music or the atmosphere. In fact, it's possible that different ones of us are into different things. It might be candles and robes that float your boat. They don't float mine, but for some people that is the very heart of worship. They love it. It might be the guitars and songs. Take them away and you've gutted worship. It might be organs and hymns. Now there's true worship. It might be raised hands or, or humble kneeling. But friends, we have to acknowledge these are outward forms. They might be useful, they might become precious to us, they are never the heart of worship. The essence of worship is meeting God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We worship the Father through the Son by the enabling of the Holy Spirit. It is Trinitarian and that is the heart of worship. And that actually means 
Worship is wonderfully simple. We saw this morning all the detail of Old Testament work. It was so complicated, wasn't it? So many prescriptions, bowls and utensils and, and priests and sacrifices and offerings and tents and everything had be just so. But in, in New Testament worship now, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, centered on him, it's actually remarkably simple. No need for ritual or ceremony or sign or symbol, no priests, no sacrifices, no outward performance. The real thing in worship is not our external forms, but communion with God through the work of Jesus Christ by the inward work of the Holy Spirit. And quite simply, there is a rhythm then to the life of worship. Uh, We come together. Perhaps you might say a weekly rhythm of worship as we gather as the church of Jesus Christ and we meet together as the temple of the living God and we hear God's word and we sing God's praise and we partake of the sacraments and we're strengthened and fueled and built up but in that hour or so of worship we're just being fueled to go out for 24-7 worship And in 24-7 worship, for the rest of the week now, between when we last met and when we'll next meet together, there are rhythms of worship. One of the best rhythms of worship you can have is a pattern of daily meeting with Jesus, daily meeting with your Father in heaven. It's one of the, one of the best things you can do, uh, to, to, to have a time when in your day you meet with God, you read His Word, you pray, you, you, you reflect, you give thanks for the gospel again, your soul is fed. If you can do that daily, that's a wonderful way to grow spiritually. Another rhythm might be doing that as a family. Family worship is a wonderful way to meet with God. But then, then you go off to work, or you go to sport, or you go to uni. Now, Is it now a secular activity? No, it's a sacred activity. You're the temple of the living God. You're there with the Holy Spirit within you, a follower of Jesus. Everything that you do is sanctified. Everything that you do is an act of worship. Do you remember what we saw of Adam and Eve? They they communed, they had intimacy with God, but they were also worshipping God as they served in the garden. And now, if you're a gardener, you continue to worship God by gardening. And if you're a teacher, or you're a cleaner, or you're a plumber, like plumb to the glory of God, yep, do anything you do to the glory of God, honouring Him, respecting Him, living daily in His presence, before his face. Well, let me wrap up. Jesus said in this passage, these are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. That's, that's what he's seeking. That's what he wants. And Jesus had come to seek worshippers like that. And that's what he was doing with the Samaritan woman. 
That's why he's breaking all the rules there. He is seeking another true worshipper. And it's very interesting to think about her life. Just as she went to that well day after day after day to draw water, possibly drawing it in the middle of the day because of the shame and disgrace of her life so that she wasn't there when most of the people would have been drawing water. Just as she had to draw water day by day, so it seems she had been drawing from men year by year, one man after another. What had she been seeking for in all those relationships? We're not told. Maybe love, security, acceptance, pleasure. Remember what we saw in chapter 3 of the Bible, Genesis 3? Our hearts long for beauty. They long for intimacy. They long for love and acceptance and joy. We long for paradise. And now what Jesus says to this woman who's gone through man after man after man and who goes and draws water day after day after day, he says, if you come to me, I'll give you living water. I'll give you life. I'll satisfy your heart in the way nothing else can. If she comes and drinks of him and of his love and of his grace, he will bring her into relationship with the God who had created her for himself. And as she comes to Jesus, she will become one of the true worshippers who worships the Father in spirit and in truth. And the same is true for you. When you believe in Jesus, when the Holy Spirit works in your heart and points you to Jesus, the way, the truth and the life, he will begin to work in you streams of living water. He will give you life. And as you begin to worship God, as you take up a life of 24-7 worship of God, in him, your soul will be refreshed with streams of living water. That's the glorious promise of the gospel. Can I pray?